Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today. At LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, you're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs with me. We've got Luke Bentham from The Dirty Nil here. We talk about his jobs at Starbucks, as a limo valet, as well as their most meaningful tours, the hardest tours as well, how they love being unapologetically extra, and their new record, Fuck Up, where that name came from and how they're completely set on it. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, you can review it, you can rate it, you can tell your friends. It's on all the platforms. I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Everyone who listens to these episodes are the people that make it. So thank you so much for listening and keeping up with it. There's a, I've got a bunch of episodes that I'm looking forward to. As always, cheers for coming along for the ride. East London Signature Brew have been brewing music-inspired beers since 2011. You can buy beers off their website, signaturebrew.co.uk. Ones they've collaborated on with Mastodon, Idols, Slaves recently sports team and with the voucher code 101 podcast that's all capitals you can get 10% off your order delivered directly to your door over lockdown cheers for listening here's luke bentham well i mean when we really started getting into touring which was probably around the age of 23 or so, so that's 2013. You know, we, our, our touring was definitely very few and far between. So um, we were just beginning to go play in the United States and um, do kind of short tour, like kind of regional tours. And in between those jobs, I was I was working at a I was working at a butcher shop during that time, which is you know 
in retrospect, uh, not the greatest job for a guitar player to have. All the knives and, you know, sharp things and uh, a lot of just th- being around things designed to cut through flesh and being, you know, sometimes a little hungover or n- maybe not, not hungover, but thinking about music, thinking about what I'd rather be doing and not thinking about the, cl- the cleaver in my hands. So, you know, luckily <laughs> I escaped unmaimed uh, for the most part. At least physically, emotionally, uh, I'll be I'll be forever scarred by working at a bush shop. How long How long were you working there for then? About two years on and off. And also during the same time, I was working at Starbucks and I was the worst fucking Starbucks employee ever. Like they, you know, <laughs> they would tell you how many pumps of whatever bullshit go into anything. And I just said, yeah, fuck that. And I would just, I just didn't, I just, I, I found the whole thing. I was just a bad employee. I did not, uh, I did not want to do that job very well because I really resented the clientele coming in there and the way that they treated the staff. So I was like, well, you know, you're going to get your perfect drink made my way every time, not, uh, <laughs> not necessarily your way. So I didn't really like that job, but ironically, I won an employee of the month for some reason. I don't know. The boss just like <laughs> I was trying to invent a lot of drinks and stuff while I was there, mostly kind of uh, uh, to entertain myself. But I meant I invented one kind of like frozen drink that has like red syrup smat like kind of smattered all over it, and I called it. Uh, Mother Teresa's Revenge, but they didn't adopt any of my any of my inventions. Uh, very sad. But uh, start headquarters didn't 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 really like my my contributions. But I didn't really last long at Starbucks. I left on my own accord, miraculously. But um, I liked the butcher shop more because it was kind of learning some practical skills, and the quality of food was superb. So it was nice to be around um, that. And were you, were you quite open with your? you know, colleagues about playing music? Was that something that you were up for talking about? Yeah, totally. I mean, I was just, I made it very clear that I would very much so rather be out there than here to my bosses. But what my strategy, uh, inadvertently, but it always worked out this way, was that I would win, uh, I would be the jester of the, uh, of wherever I was working. And I would kind of win the appreciation or slash amusement of the, all the other kind of grunts uh, of any job that I worked uh, and would kind of, um, have you seen the movie Cool Hand Luke? There's a warden and there's a bunch of, and he's in charge of a bunch of prisoners. And there's kind of like a guy is there's kind of a, his nemesis is one of the prisoners and the prisoner kind of entertains the rest of, of the, uh, of the, of the, of the jailed guys by, kind of sparring with him on and off in a playful way. But anyways, that's what I would do at all of these jobs. Uh, it wasn't really my intention, but um, I quickly realized that I wasn't going to be able to work up to their standards because I didn't care about making lattes. So I decided to win the faculty of these establishments and just basically that would be my my currency at these places. So I remember being at the butcher shop one time and in front of all the other employees, my boss tried to dress me down and say, okay, Luke, this is the worst that I have ever seen this job done ever in my entire time being a butcher. And I said, you know, like, uh, that's not the worst thing anyone's ever said about me. And everybody, all my other coworkers <laughs> laughed and kind of gave like a little a- applause. And I said, thank you. Thank you. Um, and then later, later, you know, a couple weeks later, he yelled at me. He's like, Luke, what do you actually even do here? what are you doing? What are you doing all day? And I said, I said, uh, I'll, 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 I'll leave his name out. But I said, sir, uh, I'm here for morale. All right. I, I keep the spirit high. I might not necessarily do a whole lot of work in air quotes, but I keep everybody happy and motivated. I, and I'm always the guy to go on the coffee run because I don't like being here. So I keep everybody, <laughs> keep everybody caffeinated and smiling and ready to do their jobs. But, You're uh, the vibe anyways, technician. Exactly, I'm a vibe tech. Um, so that was traditionally my role at these jobs when we were just beginning to tour, and my ambitions uh, were really beginning to uh, swell for how much time I wanted to be dedicated towards music and my goals. And just while I was facing the reality of, you know, well, we're not going to be on the road the whole time because we don't have an agent yet. We're booking our own tours. We don't have a record deal. Deal. We don't have a manager. We didn't have anything. So we were just booking everything ourselves. So our opportunities were 
of a certain limited scope for a few years. But by the time we made it across the pond to England, that was at the beginning of 2016, that was February of 2016. Um, then by then we had our first record coming out. We had a whole team around us. And um, basically at that point, the band had become more or less a full-time job for me. Is that because you you were away so much and being on tour was sustainable? Yeah, and I'm the kind. It, it was it was it was sustainable in a sense. Um, I mean, it's never taken a whole lot of money to make me like for me to make it work. Just because I'm used to not having any money to be able to you know be happy with music, so I would just find a really cheap living set of living arrangements and um you know i would do odd jobs and stuff but i just by the nature of my own uh creative process and my hate for work i just wanted to work all the time on trying to write new songs and um that used up i I realized that when i was working at a lot of these shitty jobs that i was just spending the entire time just walking around thinking about lyrics and working on songs and making phone calls on behalf of the band and um my brain was just completely on that so i mean i was just a terrible employee because as i said i i my my mind was always elsewhere i just wanted to be back on the road is that kind of hyper focus does that feel like sometimes like a blessing and a curse certainly certainly sometimes i mean it, it definitely pisses uh people off in my uh that are close to me when i i'm you know, I have a glazed over look in their eyes. They're trying to tell me some story and I'm just thinking about the bridge in a song that we're working on. But uh, they, they have, a, the, I think that the people that are extremely close to me have a deep reservoir of patience for me and my, uh, me and my habits and my, my approach to music. Right. Because, I mean, it is funny because there, you've got so much to offer. You know, it, it makes you a, quite like a, a deep person in that sense. For sure. Yeah. And I am definitely a... Uh, I just, you know, when it came to all of my earlier relationships in my 20s, just kind of burnt out because I wasn't in a position, in a willing position at least, to be dedicating my time and emotions towards and my mental capacities towards somebody else's problems. Uh, I definitely, it took me a while to find someone who was super independent and uh, also hyper focused on what they're doing to match my uh my kind of temperament so it was uh yeah i mean people call me selfish and i say you know fuck you that's what i would say i'd say you you just haven't you haven't you're not lucky enough to have found something to that is worth driving yourself crazy and obsessing about and so don't blame me for that that's my response to that i just turned 30 and i i've i've definitely gotten more of a handle of communicating uh what i kind of like that you know about my kind of habits and what what I'm going to need personal time for me to just be able to work on my stuff so that I can, you know, really actually when I'm spending time uh, with somebody else to, you know, really actually listen and not be half in, half out thinking about the things that I'm working on, you know. So it's I, I have gotten better at um, partitioning those two worlds, but I'm certainly not perfect at it. And there's times where... I, I have a really challenging time separating them, but um, I mean, that's just the, I just, you know, people uh, who are highly motivated and who are uh, really, really obsessed with what they do. It's just, it's tough to love them. <laughs> and you can kind of forgive people for, for thinking, Oh, you want to be in a band, huh? And so you start the band, you know, you start Dirty Nail or the band that you were in before that. And were you in a band before Dirty Nail? No, I started, we started when we were 16. So you're in Dirty Nail, you do those first few tours, it goes pretty well. And then within a few years, you start building up this team around you. Does it then, you know, once you get to that stage where you're like, oh, people actually kind of like this and people actually kind of want to work with us. Did, I mean, that that's kind of a different beast, isn't it? It was. And it was like, it, it definitely was... Um a very it was it was definitely a a watershed uh building of relationships when that stuff that stuff came together very quickly once we got a manager who was extremely motivated and our manager saw us play we were desperately in need of a manager at the time because we had a lot of opportunities coming in and there was a little bit of derision internally about 
what types of opportunities we should be exploring. Maybe some divisive opinions, I should say, rather. There were some different opinions about what we should do and what, as I said, which opportunities we should explore. And so we really needed some kind of um, experience to help handle our affairs and shepherd us through the intimidating waters of, uh, you know, the music industry. That can't be brushed over, right? The fact that you've got three people. I mean, even as a trio, it's going to be quite hard, right? Meeting in the middle with each other and kind of satisfying everyone. Yeah, it's tough. You know, you just you can't make everybody happy. Like everybody's going to always have like a different opinion on things. But, you know, you have to if I ever recommend things to young bands, I would just say that, like, make sure you establish it's a Wayne Kramer from the MC5 piece of advice that he gave about five years ago. He said, whenever you form a band, make it very clear what everybody's jobs are going to be and just agree upon them from the outset. And that sounds a little idyllic and it might be harder to achieve than it sounds, but um, it's, it saves a lot of bullshit of people when you have a bunch of artists and egos and, you know, people it's, I find the most amount of conflict when I talk to other bands and most of the conflict doesn't result like revolve around actual, like the actual product, like music that they're making. It revolves around the presentation of it. So I think it's just like, you need to have some kind of, flow and division of labor and responsibility that addresses that rather than it being a free-for-all open debate over every single decision because you can just waste so much energy internally before you even turn your swords outwards like it's it's a it's a fucking waste of 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 time and energy and it burns people out like you just gotta you gotta get uh, a bit of a structure going and then just uh and then just stick with it that's that's really what i would advise people to do especially the start if you're like the songwriter and the singer and you're the one who books the shows which you can totally imagine happening i think that happens with a lot of bands after a while that's going to be pretty grating on someone Yeah. And we had a pretty good division of labor at the beginning, you know, like we had like, you know, the, the job, the different jobs changed hands. Like, you know, the very beginning I would book our shows and then Kyle kind of took that over. And then when Dave joined Dave's book, Dave booked our first American tour. It's still an amazing accomplishment, like a six week tour throughout the United States. Wow. Um, Six weeks. Six weeks all on shows that he booked, which is amazing. But, um, you know, we were desperately in need of some of some kind of um, of a we just needed a manager. Like I never really, you know, we for me, I was always DIY by necessity and not by principle, you know, because I, I appreciate that ethos. But I just saw so many people floundering under it. And I was really interested in working with somebody who was ambitious and who was fucking smarter than us about what we were actually facing and who had some experience rather than our high minded morals at age 22 and the things that we thought about the music industry. Like, you know, it's just, you're going to like, I, I, I really wanted to, I was totally happy to cut somebody in uh, who knew what the fuck they were talking about. And how did you kind of gauge that? Because, I mean, in music especially, people can speak a lot of hot air. No, oh, it's, it's a lot of bullshit, man. I mean, like, well, that's what really got us. Uh, like, you know, we, 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 had a, we had about three different managers who basically presented us with, a, uh, who, who kind of courted us early on. And our, we had one when we were like 18 or like 19 years old that if we signed that contract, we would have been we would have broken up because of how horrific the terms were. And lucky, luckily enough, I come from a very fortunate background. Both my parents are lawyers. So they, they looked at that contract and tore it up in front of my face and said, fuck this guy. And ah. I was like, yeah, you're right. So um, yeah, having a strong legal team within my home is, has been a very huge uh, asset uh, to our career at large. But then we had another set of guys that were kind of um, – that were promising kind of a cooler route that appealed to our more fragile egos who were like, you know, we can get you signed to Matador and, you know, we could be on this cool label and do these cool festivals. And we're like, that sounds cool, man. And then when it came time for them to actually get our visas to go to the United States and do, they couldn't, they couldn't put anything together. And so I got super fucking pissed off we gave them six months to do anything and they couldn't do anything. So I phoned him up and I said, you're fucking fired. 
don't call me ever again. You can't do shit. And, you know, I felt bad about the way I handled it, but we met up last year and we, we had a beer and we laughed about it and they're on to different opportunities and stuff. That's quite a strange place for you to come from because you're, you know, you got, you're clearly very self-motivated. You kind of, you know, you know what you want to do. And so to be let down like that must have been a bit of a shock. Yeah, well, it just kind of added a little bit to I was very jaded about the music industry at large when I was like 20 because of how many early opportunities, early things, early landmines we almost stepped on, be it contracts or um, a lot of just contractual things, different labels that wanted to just like absolutely sign us to these chain gang contracts that were just fucking horrible. So I was just, I was very deeply skeptical about working with anybody outside of our band, which sounds super dumb in retrospect, but I was just, you know, I just, that was my reaction to a bunch of people trying to screw us over when we were kids. I think it sounds smart. Yeah. So it took a while to kind of have to, to open up and ourselves up and be even a place that like where we were willing to contemplate working with someone in an official sense. So when we met our manager, we met through a mute, like a third party who knew that we were looking for a manager actively. And uh, our manager saw us play at this big festival in Hamilton, our hometown. And uh, not too far away from Toronto, right? Yeah, exactly. About 40 minutes away from Toronto. Um, people call it the Brooklyn of Toronto, uh, but, uh, people in Hamilton reject that term. I don't give a shit because I find civic pride to be the most boring shit ever. So anyways, so when we met our manager, it was pretty instant click of like, this is going to work. Um, he had, uh, he was an absolute wild man with a solid track record of, um, working with, uh, you worked with some 41, and um and i've just got to ask i mean i was hugely into some 41 when i was younger and i actually just listened back to all killer no filler and it is exactly that and so growing up around that was, was that did that have a huge impact on your life that record certainly i mean it was uh when when some 41 was at the top of the mtv heap or the canadian equivalent which is um much music it was awesome. Like it was like, uh, you know, there's a little bit of a, you know, um, it was, it was great. Be, it was definitely very influential as a kid to see much, so much guitar music on, uh, in such public, uh, and in, in, in such mainstream media everywhere. You know, it was a, it was definitely a different, it was, a, it, it definitely motivated us to want to play music. But, um, anyways, it was, it was an instantaneous connection between us and our manager because, our manager has uh, a partner who is like strictly a logistics person and our manager is more of like a wild man, uh, uh, genius thought guy whose energy matched ours perfectly and our kind of celebration of spectacle and the absurd and humor and uh, with a gr- trolling the world with a grin. Uh, so we, we just, it was, it was like, it was a very instantaneous connection that we knew Um win or fail this is what we want to do we want to work with this person in my experience meeting people who you know work as managers or press or whatever you know even if it's not that obvious immediately there is this kind of narrative this kind of rhetoric that you're trying to be similar to the thing that's been a a blueprint of success so from that point of view the thing that i fucking love about music being a music fan and also working orbiting these kinds of people is when people are like no this is me i'm fucking gonna do this I want to sound like Kim Crimson or I want to fucking, I want to have this huge spectacle. And that, and that is, you know, that's an absolute brilliant thing about Dirty Nil. We appreciate that. You see you live and you, you, can, you can tell, you can tell that you just want to do that rather than have anything else in mind. Well, it's just so easy to see when other people are trying to do it. And I don't blame people uh, because you're like, of course, you want it to be your job. You want to kind of have some kind of stability, you know, or have some kind of idea that this thing that you're about to do is going to go well rather than you know, because it feels like a crapshoot a lot of the time, right? For sure. And I think that we really kind of matched the energy with our manager about that. That, that, that they're, like, This is about, you know, obviously there are some goals, like some fiscal goals to lay out for yourself so that this is sustainable. But at the end of the day, 
the game is rigged. So you might as well just do it your way and see what the fuck happens and take no prisoners and gamble. And that's what we do. We do a lot of gambling and we try shit and it fails, but most of the stuff we try and people copy it. And that's the best form of flattery. Like I love seeing when people employ the things that maybe we didn't pioneer, but like, I don't like we, we, we try things that at least we thought we generated the idea. Nothing's new under the sun, as they say, but you know, we see people in our peer group emulating things that we've done and that's how we know we're, we're on the right path. And I think seeing you live, I think I always get like a Beastie Boys vibe. I don't know. It's something about your basis. There's definitely a Beastie Boys vibe. I think there's a, there's a lot of, uh, um, yeah, Ross has, Ross brings the thunder. Ross. He's, de- he's, uh, he's an absolute, uh, an absolute, he's a true original. There's you no can one feel out. that. You can feel yeah, that. You, you'll never meet another guy like Ross. There's never a, a player like him or anything. Like he can play, he can play anything. That must be nice for you to be around that. Oh, it's fantastically liberating in terms of, um, you know, I can bring in any kind of song. Um, you know, we're never going to make like a country song or any, but like, or a country rap song. And maybe who knows if, if it well, depends how much we want to troll people, but, um, you know, Ross can play over anything and he's got a big, he's got a really long background in hardcore. So he's excellent at, very very strong backup vocals and um we share the same kind of um the three of us when we've got an idea that is really kind of playful and we know it's in a weird territory that no one has really done before uh we get excited about like how it's going to piss some people off and confuse people um and that kind of mad wide-eyed energy is like is a major uh force uh for action in our band like when we thought of when i presented fuck art to the group everybody like did this hilarious mad horse laugh and uh we kind of looked at each other and kept chanting it and we knew that was our record title and there was nothing (laughs) that our record label or our published no one could talk us out of it so, so you know, you got the manager at this point, and you have this kind of infrastructure. So when you, when you're touring, it feels. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but maybe it, it felt a little bit more legitimized. And so, did the three of you kind of had? Were you all on the same level as, you know, I am going to prioritize this over everything else? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that you know, um, I had a job in. 2015, like right after, right before we went on the Warp Tour, like we were already touring the United States heavily. We hadn't yet been to Europe as a band. Um, but I had a job before we did this fucking 10 week Warp Tour, and I was um, I was cleaning limos. That was my job. Wow. I was uh, wow. I was so limos would come in and I would service them. I would top up the oil. I would gas them up. I would clean them. I would shine them up. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of weird shit uh, in a used limo in the backseat of a used limo. So that was a very interesting job that one. Looked like a lot of good nights happened in those limos. Um, anyways, one of these days, I was um, I was a little bit hungover, and I was driving around a stretch Escalade limo, and I sheared the rear wheel well off it. And uh, they told me, hey, you're going to have to pay for that like out of your pocket. And I said, well, no, like you can fire me, but that's totally legal and you're, and you're totally within your rights, but you can't charge me for something I broke at work. And they're like, well, it, it's the right thing to do. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's bullshit and it's illegal. It's actually illegal. So I looked it up and I was right. It's illegal. Like if you work at the fucking Hubble telescope and you break that thing and they're like, well, Sven, you owe us a hundred million dollars. How are you going to pay? How does that like? Does that make any sense? No, but they can fire you. Like that's not how employment law works. So, anyways, I got in a dispute with these people, and I they tried to convince me that it's the right thing to do. And I said, I work here. I'm not your friend. Okay, it's not that like you can I, like. How about let me take the decision away from you? I quit. Y'all owe me four hundred dollars as a gesture of conciliation 
uh, I will, you can have the, that money and never talk to me again, please. And that was it. So I just left and I let them keep my paycheck. So, so they, they tried to make you pay for this expensive wheel arch, which would presumably be thousands upon thousands. Yeah, it was, it was like, it was just basically the superficial plastic wheel. Well, they wanted, they wanted ah, like them. a grand out of me. And I'm like, I'm not paying you a grand. They're like, don't worry. We'll just slowly take it off your paycheck. Like $200 at a time. I'm like, I fucking quit this job. Yeah. So I was, I was working like 10 hours a day by myself at this place. I did not like it. And so basically the reason why I tell this story is because after that I was like, I'm fucking done doing things that aren't working in a positive direction for my band. And, uh, even what, regardless of what that means, really, like, I'm just, I don't want to, I would rather just, uh, work for like, just, just live really modestly, not spend any money. And in, in the time that we are home and just, I want to, I need to be able to make, uh, music for us to work on and, um, and keep, keep working so that the whole, if, if I got to, if in the times where I've had a side job that I'm working while we're home, the whole engine just stops because I'm just slow. I need to work on things obsessively and all the time to, to get them done. And if you've got the warp to, if, you, if you've got a slot on the warp tour, I mean, that's a vote of confidence, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I was just like, we're going on the warp tour, going away for 10 weeks. We'll see what the hell happens after that. So we did that. That was insane. And then we did another full US tour that fall after we got home from there. So 2015 was a huge year of touring. 2016 was even bigger. We went to Europe three times, we went to the US three times. And how, how crazy did you get on that? How, how, like, how emotionally crazy did you, did you go? Definitely on the Warp Tour was one of the most I've ever felt like. That was the first time I, I mean, I turned 25 on that tour, but it was the first time that I felt like um, it was the, it was like, it was definitely the most profound test of my faith in like, do you really want to do this? Do you remember that moment? It was, it was, there was definitely acute moments, but also just a long-term uh flavor of that in my in my mouth uh taste of it for for several weeks because i mean you know we were one of the only bands uh we were the only rock band on the tour like there was maybe one or two other ones but it was like when when we got the offer to do warp tour like fuck yeah um you know no effects and bad religion and all that shit i had not opened up a warp tour lineup catalog in a long time i just assumed um, because of what, you know, I've always heard. And then when they announced all the artists, I'm like, I don't know who any of these motherfuckers are like, and they don't sound good. Like it was a lot of bands with fake guitar cabs and like computers. And, um, on, like it just, it wasn't, there was no, there was no rock and roll music. And like, there wasn't even any punk music on the Warp Tour. Like there wasn't anything that you would, you know, at least, you know, in, not in like a, in a cool sense, like it's not punk enough. I'm just saying this, there wasn't anything uh, that sonically would sound to me like punk music. And so, you know, no one was coming to see us play on that tour other than like a few people once in a while. And it was really like, if you wanted to come see us on the Warped Tour, it was really tough. Like you'd have to get there early. You'd have to find the Ernie Ball stage, which I like to call the stage that God forgot because they would put it in the weirdest, most out of the way corner of whatever fucking field we were playing. And then you would play a 20 minute set at a random time during the day and then sit at your merch table baking in the sun for the rest of the day and hope that you sell a couple of t-shirts. And then, um, do you think about dropping off? Never, no, not, never any thoughts like that. Just like, I mean, we never, we never quit anything, but it was like, at, like, it was just in a long, my, my, my brains were more, my brain was more in an existential place of like, can I do that? How long can I do this? There was no kind of acute thoughts of like, um, well, I'm going to, like, I don't want to do this tour anymore. It was more like, um, it was more like, is this the path for me kind of deal, which, uh, it was, um, I mean, w- what ended up happening on that tour though, is that slowly, uh, the faculty of the tour would come and see us every single day. And by that, I mean 
all these big bands, they're like guitar techs and the, the, those, the bands themselves and all the cooks on the tour would come see us every day. And our, our stage was just full, all the side wings with just the biggest bands on the tour would just be standing there watching us play every day, bobbing their heads and singing along. And so the gains that we made from that tour were not apparent while we were doing it, but you know, having my chemical romances guitar tech be a huge fan of your band uh, yields dividends in strange and mysterious ways. And there's a lot of other examples uh, like that, that we accrued on that tour. For real. I think that's maybe something, you know, a, a, a lovely little thing for us all to think about that within our own journeys that, you know, the small things that we do along the way, paying dividends is the perfect phrase for it. It comes back later on, doesn't it? You never know. And that's why, um, you know, not to be corny or anything, but it's, it's, it's crucial to, um, to never mail it in ever, ever. Uh, in the, one of my, uh, I don't know how much of a Ricky Gervais fan you are, but, uh, he says some dumb shit that kind of offends me, but I mean, I love the office. yeah, there's one line that he has though, about working, uh, like he's talking about like, uh, singers being, um, like not showing up for gigs and just like imagine like a laborer saying like, you know what? I'm not really like feeling that good today. And then his boss being like, mate, just put the fucking bricks down, mate. Like, or whatever. Yeah, like, uh, yeah. anyways, that's how Shut I, the fuck do, up. yeah, just yeah. do your job. So, I mean, I know that's a huge contradiction to what I said about my attitude towards Starbucks but um, I always viewed those things as a, as a means to an end. You know, I was, those were just, I was never mentally there while I was there. I was just working on my own, the job that I actually want to do. So, yeah, that's the thing is that, like, you know, there were some bands that actually dropped off the Warp Tour because they just thought it wasn't doing anything for them and they were sour on stage. And you can always see, you can always see when people are, are bumming up there on stage and at a big show or a little show, there's an incommunicable or uh, there's an, there's an unspoken, but very like a, uh, a clear vibe that everyone in the room feels when someone doesn't want to be there when they're on stage. And, you know, I, I've never, I never want to admit that. Um, so yeah, as you said, like if whatever, whatever you are pursuing, like you never know what little steps you're taking are going to uh, do for you in the future. So uh, always try hard. I mean, did that help shape you at least knowing that you, you know what you didn't want to be like. Did that help push you further into your your vision of, you know, this grinning, you know, rock and roll troupe having a blast? It definitely galvanized my uh, my will to do this come hell or high water. That there was that I didn't that I really decided on that tour that yes, this is exactly what I want to do and there's there's no um, there's no, there's nothing else for me. I'd rather like, even if we play for five people for the rest of our lives, this is what I want to do as long as I can. And I definitely developed, I mean, like a lot of the things that um, I do on stage now and my general kind of stage, uh, the things like the, I don't know, the things that I guess I can say that I'm known for doing, if I can say that, uh, I developed on that tour because I was desperate for people to come to just stop walking past our tent to the vape store uh, and watch our band play for five seconds because we traveled, you know, 4,000 kilometers to be here. So, um, and do you take that into, I mean, doing support tours? I mean, that, that totally seems like a route of, the, of you know, towards doing what you want to do. You want, you want to do a lot of support tours to, you know, get in front of the people who, you know, might like your band. And so does that kind of play into that as well? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, the object uh it's the support tours are a very very valuable um route of getting new fans and there have been some that have been incredibly valuable for us like opening for against me through like on a full u.s tour did did a lot for us yeah what was that like that was one of my favorite tours we've ever done it was um you know there's been a few bands that i would put in like the kind of upper echelons of uh of bands that we've ever played with that kind of hold like 
there's a there's there's a special level of like holy shit this band is really good and they're really good every night they're like a proper proper band you know billy talent is one of them that's just like you never see them uh you never see them not giving it a thousand percent and you never see them not sounding incredible every single night and against me is the same thing against me was like the closest i think that you'll get to see like a band like you know, like a, a band like The Replacements or something that's just like a really loud, proper rock band that can get everybody jumping. And it's not in like kind of a cheesy. Uh, it's so fucking real, isn't it? Oh, it's it's it's, uh, you know, I was a fan. I was a fan beforehand. I was really big into New Wave when it came out. I was like 16. But um, seeing them play live and hanging out with them and um yeah that was that was a very special tour and it must be funny hanging out with that crew because they've been doing it for so long and you know in laura jane grace's book i mean you can kind of hear it through the records over the years anyway but just to read their ups and downs to see them you know it's not necessarily coming out the other side it's the continuation of that journey and did you did you sort of see that when you were hanging out with them i did yeah it kind of yielded itself in uh or revealed itself in different ways of like in it sometimes you could see you could see like how much of a hardened and distilled version of a, of a rock show that they can give and how kind of effortless it is because how good they are and how many hours they have cumulatively and together that was very impressive but then like behind the scenes seeing um just kind of picking up on the the bonds that tie this band together and how long they are and uh that was a special thing to witness and very um inspiring but also kind of uh some of the ways where they still seem like a young band when they're kind of like when when we saw them like working on like Tom Petty passed away on that um, tour, and and so they 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 did a Tom Petty cover. They did "Running Down a Dream," and I remember seeing them working on that song. And they see like it just it, I could see my own band uh, in them working on this song. It was it was like at the same time as I said they were this polished, distilled powerhouse of a rock band, and at the same time, kind of that band that we all are in the in the garage. Like, no, it's an A chord, dumbass. Like, you know. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you can it's funny to see that them hold that um uh it was beautiful to see both sides of the coin and very um as i said inspiring that like you know we're on a you know not comparing ourselves uh, in our terms of our career trajectory but that these guys are lifers and that's exactly what uh, i want to be too with that in mind looking back at your discography you know 2016 the first one higher power then 2018 and then now like looking looking back at those two albums and you know the third one we're on the eve of it what's changed between those records um i would say there's a level of confidence that we have now that um that we just didn't have i think there was a lot of nervous energy on higher power that um higher power was also like a like a fucking uh headache to make in a lot of ways it was very disjointed and we learned it took the longest to make out of all of them just because of the way we made it. And uh, we learned a lot of hard lessons about recording and about preparation for recording um, on that one. How was the way you made it? Well, we did all the basic tracking in Toronto for about two weeks. And then we spent like fucking a month or something doing vocals and guitar um, in Hamilton. And, you know, there was like, it was poorly planned out in retrospect. We just thought, you know, this is going to work out great and all this stuff. But like, we, you know, we, we just weren't as ready to make a good, like a, a powerful sounding record. Um, and I still, you know, I still, I, I went back and listened to a couple snippets of higher power the other day, just cause I was curious as to how it sounded. But you know, we learned that pre-production and demoing is really important when we did that record because there were certain things that we, you know, when we got in to do it, uh, where we learned like, hey, I thought you were doing this and it turns out you're doing that. And now our, we, we're kind of, you know, not exactly playing together all that well on this little part here. And there's just a cumulative effect of those kind of oversights and like a uh, lack of um, preparation that 
that certainly affect the overall sound. And again, it's got a sound, it's wicked, it's raw, it's wild. I love it. But um, the focus for Master Volume was to not uh, do the same thing. We wanted to have things really, really uh, ironed out. And uh, we practiced every day for a year, really, to make that record about wow. eight months or so. And, we, you know, we were on tour. That's no no small feat to do that. No, and that's what we did with this one too. You know, we, we just, I'm I'm ultra suspicious of anything that takes less effort. Um, and I'm not interested in shortcuts when it comes to making making music. And um, as I said, I feel very fortunate that there's something, I have something in my life um, that I get to decide the thing that's going to kill me and drive me crazy. And it's, and it's rock and roll, like thinking about it and working on it and tweaking things and, you know, lying awake at night, like thinking like, you know, I think I can just tighten up that second verse lyrics and like, you know, it's just, I, I, uh, I drive myself nuts working on it. But I'm, as I said, I feel very fortunate that, that, that I get to choose the thing that's going to drive me nuts rather than working at Starbucks and having just the existential emptiness drive me crazy. Um, Doing that's not going to leave much time for much else really. No, exactly. So, I mean, when, when we did fuck art, we, um, we, uh, Oh God. Are are you still stoked? Do you get to say that? Yeah, I'm super pumped. It's, it's a, it's a title designed to confuse and amuse. And, uh, it's also, you can't say it without smiling. Even my grandma couldn't say it without smiling. Like it's, it's meant (laughs) to bring joy and it, and it, and it, and it is. So, um, uh, when we made fuck art, I think like, you know, we we had kind of really explored a kind of classic rock uh some 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 classic rock influences like Aerosmith and Queen when we were doing Master Volume and when we got around when we got around to um uh fuck art we were kind of more on a thrash tip we were more into Ride the Lightning and we were listening to a lot more bands like turnstile and um this band called candy uh cool i haven't heard them i'll check that out very very aggressive awesome brutal recordings um there's a song called lust for destruction that's like i can't stop listening to it even a year later after hearing it it's just an incredible recording um but just heavy ignorant fucking riffs and uh but also i think we had kind of stretched our our tastes out a little bit on master volume and explored them a little bit further when we did this one. And we were less afraid to like to do um, some more vulnerable things um, and also do some heavier things. So to me, it sounds like the kind of the, the heaviest uh, thing that we've done in areas and the, the, the lightest thing we've done in other areas and most kind of vulnerable. So it's got it, it. It has a different kind of um, a different kind of uh, uh, vibe from the bravado of Master Volume. It's got more uh, sledgehammers and uh, and uh, and crying all that all the above. Excellent. Well, Luke, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. When I saw you at the Black Heart in Camden last year, or maybe this year, I came up the stairs to the, to the back of the room, and it was it was raging. It was great. That was a great show. I think that spirit really embodies it. And it's great to hear, you know, you talk about it. Well, it's my pleasure. And I, I, I very much so appreciate you having me on. Fuck yeah. Oh, cool. What are you up to the rest of this week to end with? Um, I've got a, I got a few more interviews and uh, just um, working on the hits of tomorrow with my boys, you know. A <laughs> couple more times saying fuck up. Yeah, a couple more times uh, fuck, saying fuck up. I will... Uh, I will uh, leave you with one thing that my uh, I told my mom that we were going to call the album "Fuck Art" because she had signed us up for painting lessons at the beginning of the year, and uh, <laughs> me and my mom and my sister were doing painting lessons, and we were having it was so much fun. Actually, I actually started painting because of it. But um, we uh, this there was this older guy in the back of the room, and this is like community college, like or community class. Uh, lessons so it's very kind of low pressure really relaxed but there's this one super whiny dude in his 70s who's just like my painting doesn't look like that and i got a bristle stuck in my painting and what do i do now and the teacher was very 
very patient with him. And, and, uh, at some point, uh, she just tells him to, you know, just finish your painting and then I'll help you after. And then I heard him say, fuck art. And, uh, <laughs> that's, that's why we call our album that. And, uh, uh I told my mom that's, we're going to call the album. And, uh, she left two different messages on my, um, answering machine saying, Luke, please don't call your album fuck art. And uh, so that's what we credited her. Uh, Rebecca, please don't call your album Fuck Art Bentham in the thank yous for our, for our <laughs> record. So. Well, was she left you two voicemails. There's another one saying, again, please don't do it. Yeah, exactly. Like a week later. She's just like, I've been thinking about it more. And like, <laughs> I'm oh, so dude. worried. Yeah. Great. Well, Luke, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This has been an excellent conversation. Great to, great to talk to you. So that was Luke Bentham, edited by Sophie Porter. Check out her band, Other Half. Their new record, Big 20, is absolutely one of the best things that's been released this year. And if you liked this episode, like I was begging you at the start, please go ahead and share it. Cheers for listening. I've been working all day, This is a Mighty Moon Media Podcast. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.